Good morning, everybody. How are we? If you could please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Romans chapter 9. Hang on now, bear with me. Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at the first 18 verses. Yes, a new, new chapter this morning. Um, so up until now, Paul has been, uh, Paul's been writing about doctrine, about what we should believe as Christians. Um, he spoke about humanity's, all humanity's need for God's glorious provision, which is only found in and through Jesus Christ. And now in verses 9 to 11, he goes back to dealing with this subject with the people of Israel, those descendants of Abraham. And then after that, in verses 12 through to 15, Paul tells us that in light of what I've just taught you, in light of what I've just written in this letter, um, this is how you should live your life. So Paul finished um, chapter 8, the last two verses there, with words, of, with words of victory, with words of hope, um, that we are secure because nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from God's loves. That's in verses 38 to 39. Now, Paul addresses some of the arguments that your average Hebrew, your average Jew of his day, might respond in what Paul has just said. So not only does he anticipate their objections, but he answers those imaginary questions that they might raise. So what would they be? Well, the Jew might say, well, what about God's chosen people? What about us, Israel? If nothing can separate God's love for those who are in Jesus, what happens to us Jews who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah? Have we been replaced? Are we no longer loved by God? Now, Paul was a Jew, and Paul was devastated that the majority of his people refused Jesus. And it's because of their belief that they were all, they believed that they were already secure in their salvation. After all, they were Jews. We don't need your Messiah. That was their attitude. Paul has already addressed this sense of entitlement in chapters 2 and 3. And in chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, Paul said, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, so that's the law of Moses, and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So that was, that was their status. That is who they saw themselves. The Jewish people were extremely proud of their heritage. They were proud that God have, had given them, and only them, the law. 
For them, that was confirmation that they were a very special people, a people loved by God, a people whose salvation was secure. And as Paul says, they boasted. They bragged about their relationship with God while at the same time looking down their noses at those filthy, unsaved, unredeemed Gentiles. They believed that they would never face God's judgment because they had the Ten Commandments. They had the law. They were secure. And we saw back then how Paul tried to convince them that he said, look, guys, the law is not going to save you. And nor is circumcision. Chapter 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So your average Jew, he misused and he misunderstood circumcision. For a Jew, circumcision was the part of it was part of their national identity. They regarded it as a physical seal of their salvation. But as important as circumcision was for them, it was no ticket to heaven. Circumcision revealed God's heart for man to cut away his fleshly desires. It was a reminder it was a spiritual concept whereby man no longer lived for his flesh, for himself and his desires, but for what God wanted in his life. The Jews were to be a people of God. That is true. A people who put God before their own desires, and that's what God wished. They were to be God's evangelists. Then Paul pointed out to them that if you are a breaker of God's law, then circumcision now becomes uncircumcision. Not a man's, it means absolutely nothing. And you might as well not be circumcised at all. And then he used the example of Abraham. He went back to Genesis 15:5, back to his people's history. And he tells us that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord then counted him as righteous. Now this was 400 years before God gave Israel the law. It was before even Abraham was circumcised. So neither the law or circumcision made him right with God. It was Abraham's faith in God. Abraham was declared righteous by God because he believed and trusted in him. Nothing to do with the law, nothing to do with works, nothing to do with circumcision. Paul wrote in his letter to the, to the Galatians, chapter 6, verse 15, he said, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor, or, nor uncircumcision. So it doesn't matter. And then he says, What does matter? is that you are a new creation. If you are saved, this is what he's trying to get through to the Jewish people. If you are saved, then you are a new creation. And salvation comes by God's grace through faith. And that's it. That's final. 
There is new life within you. And that is what makes you a Christian. That is what gets you into heaven. And if you remember how Paul began this book, back in chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Who believes. Paul was not ashamed by the way in which God chose to save mankind. But the Jews, they were stumbled by it. And Paul mentions this in chapter 9, the last two verses there, verses 32 and 33. He makes reference to that, that stumbling there. They were stumbled that God would make salvation a free gift and available to all, to everybody, on the basis of faith. No works required, no law-keeping necessary. And they were outraged that anyone would suggest that they would need a savior just as much as these Gentiles. They were disgusted that they, both Jew and Gentile, were equally in need of salvation. That was the extent of their religious pride. That is what Paul was battling against, trying to get through to his own people. You do not automatically receive salvation just because you are a Jew. So here Paul, he undermines their expectation of salvation just because they were descendants of Abraham. And we saw in chapter 3 how Paul addressed some of the arguments that, that they might have against Paul's teaching on this subject. And that is the Jews are in need of the gospel. So when we come to this chapter, chapter 9, Paul once again focuses attention on the Jewish people. And he anticipates their next logical question. And that is, in light of what Paul have just, has just taught, if everyone, both Jew and Gentile alike, need to be saved, then where is the value in being God's chosen people? Are we no longer loved by him? And that's what chapter 9 is all about. Israel's rejection of God's plan of salvation. But that certainly doesn't mean that God is finished with Israel. Because he's not. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 11. God still has a plan for the Jewish people. For the nation Israel. Okay, let's look at verses 1 to 3. So he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accused and cut off from God for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul assures them that he is not in the business of making, making dramatic statements and that God is his witness. And we see here his sorrow, his anguish for Israel. 
And it was genuine. He was willing, if it were possible, and it's not, he was willing to give up, to lose his salvation, if it meant that the Jewish people would come to Christ. But sadly, the majority of whom refused him. You know, and this statement by Paul has certainly moved me to question my heart for, for my people. You know, how concerned am I for their salvation? It makes you think, doesn't it? What am I doing to reach the lost? Would I be prepared, if possible, but it's not, to give up my entry into heaven to see all my countrymen get saved? That was Paul's heart. Sacrificial, loving. Paul explains to the Jews, he says, look guys, you haven't been hard done by here. And he does that by pointing to the many privilege that the Jewish people have had throughout their history. Look at verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So they are Israelites. They are God's chosen people. They have been adopted into God's own family. They are his children. No Gentile of that day could ever claim such a thing. They also had the glory, the very presence of God among them. Exodus 13, 21 tells us how the Lord went before them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's glory, his very presence, it filled the tabernacle and it also filled the temple. The Gentiles, they never had that relationship. The Jewish people had the covenants, those agreements that God made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and later on with David. No agreements were ever made with the Gentile nations. Paul is saying, look, guys, you're not being hard done by it. Look to your history. They were given the law, God's very word. And they had this privilege of worshiping the Lord. They could enter the temple. No Gentile could ever enter the temple. And they had the promises. The promises that God would bless his people if they kept his statutes, if they kept his law. You do this, I'll do this. No Gentiles received that. No Gentile received any promise from God. Verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from their race, according to the flesh, so here Paul is about to announce the <clears throat> excuse me, the biggest blessing of all is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It was through his people, the Jewish people, that God provided a way for all humanity to be saved. 
So that was something that they could add to their list, to their list of privileges. So just because God willed that a Jew be saved in the same way as a Gentile did not mean that they weren't a blessed people. Because, again, all they had to do was just look to your history. That's what Paul is telling them. And notice here how Paul describes Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. So here, Paul, there's a, there's a clear declaration of Christ's deity. And now Paul anticipates their next argument. Okay, so if Israel has all these advantages, Paul, all these privileges, then why is it that the majority of the Jewish people are not coming to your Messiah? Is there something wrong with God's word? Is there something wrong with his promises? Has God's plan for Israel failed? And the answers are found in verses 6 to 9. So Paul answers this, this argument. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, one meaning of the name Israel is governed by God. So God chose the Jewish people. He promised Abraham a child. But as we know, Abraham was impatient. He could not wait. He wanted to kickstart God's sovereign will. So he decided, him and the wife decided, to give God a helping hand. And for him to have a son with his wife's uh, maidservant, Hagar. Yet Ishmael, the product of that relationship, did not inherit because he was not God's promised son. Isaac was. And it would be through the descendants of Isaac that God would bring the promised Messiah. So God chose Isaac. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, the Jews didn't have a problem with that decision, that decision by God, because they themselves were descendants of Isaac. So thumbs up for God on that one. The Jews were all about God's promises and blessings as long as it was focused on them and only them. The protest came when God's sovereign will clashed against their thinking regarding salvation. Jesus came to save Jew and Gentile alike, but in their minds, paradise was a Gentile-free zone. Heaven was kosher. No Gentiles allowed. But John states in 1 John 12, but to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, 
So salvation is not an inheritance. And that's how the Jews viewed it. Born a Jew, I am saved. Nor of the will of the flesh. So it's not by works, it's not by keeping the law of circumcision. Nor of the will of man, but of God. God's plan. God's sovereign will, not theirs. And Paul is clear, just because you are descended from Abraham and Isaac does not mean that you are guaranteed salvation. Just as being born into a Christian family does not guarantee you a place in heaven. Now, the Jews might have argued against Paul's first statement by saying, okay, Paul, we get your argument, but Ishmael's mother was an Egyptian. So there's no way that he could be the son of promise. So just in case they went there, Paul uses the example of Jacob and Esau, twin boys born of the same Jewish mother. So there's no arguments on this one, verses 10 to 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good nor bad, because they're still in the womb, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, told by God, the older will serve the younger. This is in Genesis 25, 23. As it is written, and here Paul quotes Malachi chapter 1. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And we know, we know the story. One day Esau returned from hunting. He was hungry. He smelled that lovely lentil stew. They call it a blind stew in Waterford. There's no meat in it. So he, he smelt the stew and he said, yeah, I'll have some of that. Jacob agreed. He said, look, I'll give you some, but there's one condition. You will have to give me your birthright in exchange for this soup. And Esau agreed. He gave up his inheritance. He put his temporary physical needs over his God-given blessings. He sold it for a bowl of soup. Now, both Jacob and Esau were fathers of nations, as promised by God. And God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and he became the father of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And Esau became the father of the Edomites. And the Edomites and the Israelites did not get along, and they still don't get along. And it was through the prophet Malachi that the Lord declared, and Paul quotes it here in verse 13, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, and this is strong language, but Esau I have hated. Now, this is where the English language fails. God didn't hate Esau in the way that we would understand the word. In the Hebrew, it means to love less. So God didn't actually hate the guy in, in, in the way we would think it. He just did not love him as much. 
And this was God's sovereign choice, that he would use the line of Jacob to bring the Messiah into this world. But why didn't he pick Esau? No, Scripture points to the fact that God doesn't have this haphazard way of choosing. He chooses, his choosing is always based on his foreknowledge. And we saw that in last Sunday's teaching, Romans 8, 29, 30. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. God knows how an individual is going to turn out. God favored, he accepted Jacob, but he did not accept Esau. Esau, he was a man of the world. Now, you could argue that Jacob wasn't much better, and you'd be right. Jacob was a schemer. He was an absolute, he was a con artist who would do anything to get what he wanted. In fact, the, the name Jacob, it means deceiver or grabber. But he was a man that God could change. And although he struggled with the Lord, Jacob in the end was willing to, to confront his own failures. And he was willing to allow God to change him. Esau, Esau wasn't interested in the things of God. In fact, the author of Hebrews describes him as a godless man. And when Jacob received the blessing, his inheritance, what did Esau do? He deliberately went out of his way to marry a load of Canaanite women. Why did he do that? Because he knew it would really, really annoy his father. And that action reveals so much about this man's heart and how he viewed the commandments of God. He wasn't interested. <clears throat> so God chose Jacob because he knew that Esau would never accept him. God knows everything. He's sovereign. He knows the beginning and the end. That's why he chose Jacob. Now, the Jews had no issue with God choosing Jacob. Why? Because they were descendants of Jacob. In fact, they had no problem with God choosing anyone as long as it suited them. But when God chose to save mankind, both Jew and Gentile, through a crucified Messiah, they did not like that choice. They did not like his method. Their Messiah was this political, this, this warrior that would ride in on a white horse and wipe out the Romans. They didn't want a crucified Savior. Paul points to the fact that God's sovereign will has not changed. A beaten, ridiculed, and bloodied Messiah was always God's plan for the redemption of mankind. They're the ones with the issue. Paul now continues in his examples of God's sovereign choices through, through Israel's history. And so history, they know this. They know the Old Testament. They can't argue against this. Verse 14, the first section. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So the Jews are saying, 
Is it unfair that God can do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it? Yes, he's God. That's their argument. That's their question. And by doing that, they're bringing in God's, they're questioning God's fairness and his righteousness. And Paul replies, by no means, certainly not. Because when it came to Jacob and Esau, God had already made his decision before they were even born because he knew what was going to happen. It was a decision made by God based on his omniscience and sovereignty. He knows it all. We are loved by a God who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, and he is everywhere. And he will only use his sovereignty for our good, for our welfare. As Paul puts it in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? When we look at God's business card, his credentials, who can be against us? Nobody. So Paul now continues his argument by quoting God's words to Moses. Exodus 33 verse 19. So Paul tells the Jews, he says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, referring to God's mercy and compassion, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So we see in Exodus chapter 32, we have the story of the golden calf. So Moses is up on top of Mount Sinai. The people are getting a bit worried. He's gone a long time. So what do they do? They decide to make for themselves a golden idol. And they build an altar, and they throw this golden calf up on it, and they worshipped it. Now, needless to say, God wasn't too pleased. And he said to Moses, he said, that's it. I'm done with these stiff-necked people. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to exterminate them. And start again with just you, Moses. And what does Moses do? He intercedes on their behalf. He pleads with God. And what did God do? He chose to show mercy. He chose to show mercy because he is free to show mercy to anyone he wants. He's free to be compassionate whenever he wants to be compassionate. So Paul here is reminding them that they would not even exist as a people if it wasn't for God's mercy and compassion. And what he's saying is this, you were once worshipping idols, yet God chose to spare you. He poured out his compassion, his mercy upon you, yet here you are begrudging the Gentiles for the very same mercy and compassion from God. You're begrudging them. You're begrudging the Gentiles their salvation. Jonah, he did the same thing. At the end of Jonah, he built a little hut for himself just outside Nineveh. He sat in there and he sulked because that city was saved and he hated those people. He did not want to see them saved. He wanted God to destroy them. 
So Paul again, now he looks to Pharaoh. So he continues to get the Jews to get the focus off themselves, off their hearts. And he says, look to your history. Verses 17 to 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So the Lord gave instructions to Moses. I'm going to finish on this. The Lord gave instructions to Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh and demand that God's people be set free. But time after time, Pharaoh refused. And then came the plagues after each refusal. And Pharaoh's heart hardened towards God. Pharaoh tried to stop God's plan of redemption for his people, which was exactly what the religious leaders were trying to do in the time of Jesus, trying to stop God's plan of redemption for us, for the Gentile people. And sadly, it's a position that the majority of the Jews, they still hold this today, somewhat over over 2,000 years later. So in conclusion, what do we pull out of this? What is the application? Well, today's society, it's all about individualism, isn't it? It's about your dreams. It's about your aspirations. But society's sense of entitlement does not extend to God, and it certainly does not extend to salvation. Have you ever shared your faith? And someone says, yeah, that's all right for you, but I don't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's too exclusive. Oh, I believe that there's many paths to heaven. It's bull. It's bull. Salvation is not a right. It cannot be earned. It only comes through trusting in what God has done in and through Christ Jesus. So if, if you're not a believer here this morning, then you need to ask yourself, will I respond to or reject the mercy and grace which is found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Amen? So as the worship team comes up, let's pray. I nearly swore near the end. I better watch myself. I get a, get a bad reputation. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for today. We thank you for your amazing grace, Lord. We thank you. We thank you that your plan from the very beginning was to send your son to die for the likes of me, for the likes of us, Lord. We thank you that the Gentile nations are part, and they still are, they're part of your wonderful plan, Lord. And Lord, you love your people, Israel. And we know that you still have a plan for them. But while your gaze is on your church, Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would instill in us an urgency to open our mouths, to share the gospel, to proclaim the good news, Lord. 
that Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can get to heaven. No one can come to the Father except you, Lord. Holy Spirit, fill us. We pray, Lord, for a fresh anointing, a fresh baptism of your Holy Spirit this morning, Lord, that we may be warriors for the gospel, Lord. And may our swords be your word, Lord, the words that are found in your Bible, in your holy book. So, Jesus, we thank you for today. Use us, Lord. We pray for opportunities to share our faith. And, Lord, we love you, Jesus. We thank you for your sovereign will. Help us to trust in that, Lord God. In your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.